Welcome to Beyond the Code, the podcast where industry experts and brilliant legal minds discuss the impact of new emerging technologies. I'm your host, Yitzi Hammer, a lawyer and tech enthusiast. Join us as we explore the legal, regulatory, and ethical issues surrounding AI, blockchain, and more. Get ready to go beyond the code and stay ahead of the game. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Beyond the Code. Today I'm joined by Professor Brian L. Fry, a securities lawyer, a contemporary artist, an AI enthusiast, a professor of law, and an expert on intellectual property and charity law, among others. In short, an expert on many of the fields that this podcast purports to explore. Brian, I'm super excited to have you here today, but given your varied interests and areas of expertise, I just don't feel qualified to introduce you. So if you don't mind, how about you shortly introduce yourself to our audience? Well, thanks so much, Izzy. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast, uh, especially as one of, the, one of the first guests. So yeah, I, I am currently a professor on the faculty of the University of Kentucky College of Law, although this semester I'm visiting at Tulane Law School. Before going into legal academia, I was, well, primarily a securities litigator at Sullivan and Cromwell in New York City for several years uh, and went to NYU Law School. Uh, and like many securities lawyers, uh, before going to law school, I also attended art school at the San Francisco Art Institute, where I did an MFA essentially in conceptual art. And, and that's informed a lot of my uh, legal scholarship uh, going forward. So uh, my scholarship focuses, my scholarship in teaching focus primarily on intellectual property, especially copyright and trademark law, as well as elements of legal history. In the course of the last several years, I've gotten really interested in the Web3 environment and specifically in the, in the NFT market, which is a lot of crossover with my interests in the conventional art market and how it functions uh, economically. So in a nutshell, that's where I'm coming from. I, you know, I write a lot for Larvae articles. I also write a lot for, for popular media. So recently I've been publishing uh, a bunch of shorter pieces, essays and op-eds and whatnot with Coindesk, Right Click Save, Outland, and other out- outlets like that. Thank you for that. And I just have to say, I love your mind. Like, <laughs> I, I love everything that you write. I totally can re- uh, relate and connect to you on a lot of different levels. I feel like re- you're explore a lot of the ideas that I, I you know, a light bulb kind of came out of my head. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to put that somewhere in the corner. And then a couple of weeks later, I see you writing about it. So um, I think we're very much in tune in that sense. And I have to say, um, just also to share with the audience how I kind of stumbled upon your work and also um, I kind of owe you an apology. It, last June, I was asked to come and give a lecture at ETH Paris on um, NFTs and copyright law. And since you're you know, an expert in the field, I obviously came across your work and the work of Alf- Alfie Steiner. And I quoted you extensively in my lecture and in my presentation, but like an idiot, I kept referring to you as Professor Philip Fry for some reason. I don't know why. I think it just got stuck on the fa-fa. <laughs> uh, like the Fry thing, was, I was just rolling with it. So I kept saying Professor Philip Fry, Professor Philip Fry. And then a couple of people were watching the video afterwards on YouTube. And they're like, you know, we've heard of Professor Brian Fry, who writes a lot about this area, but never Philip Fry. So <laughs> maybe you got that one wrong. And I'm just like, oh, man, I feel, I feel terrible. And I right away wrote you and apologized. So I'm now apologizing to you live so please accept my apology but after that i kind of just uh, became a, a major fanboy and started following following you on twitter and uh, watching videos listening to podcasts and reading your works and i love everything that you write about it was kind of difficult for me to determine where i wanted to start today where i wanted to talk about but i think that the best place to start is you're one of the most entertaining academic scholars that I know. You actually proposed to your wife via an academic article, and you trolled the SEC through various academic articles that you minted as NFTs and did a whole bunch of other really fun stuff. So is academic scholarship at risk as a result of ChatGPT 
Um, I know I've seen a lot of uh, concern specifically from the science community of how are we going to keep ChatGPT-esque scholarly works out of our journals? And then I think, again, something else that you tweeted on the other side, some some scholars were saying, well, now we could actually focus on like the, the really interesting stuff and the research and not on like writing rubbish that the uh, that the AI could do for us. So what do you think? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so first, uh, apology accepted. I, I love everything about that. I'm I'm delighted to be Philip Fry for, for the day, you know, like, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. It's absolutely perfect. Um, uh, so. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I have done a lot of more idiosyncratic work that I frame as legal scholarship. Uh, when I got tenure and started thinking about what I wanted my career as a legal academic and legal scholar to look like, um, one of the things that bothered me the most was that uh, legal scholarship, and I, I think, frankly, academic writing in general, is an incredibly banal literary form, right? We, we have these, this kind of format that people use that doesn't allow for a great deal of, of literary expression or, or creativity, uh, and we bind ourselves to it for no particular reason. I mean, especially for legal academics, we can write anything we want to, and yet we don't. We, we typically tend to write the most sort of conventional, generic type text possible, focusing on the content rather than on the form. And so a big part of what I wanted to do was think about how to kind of activate the medium of legal scholarship and think about it as a literary form, not just a container for, for content. Uh, specifically, uh, I decided at a certain point that I wanted to do was to try to create conceptual art in the medium of, of legal scholarship. And, and so transitioning to that into your question about chat GPT, um, I, I think it's actually kind of sad that people are so scared of it because it underscores the extent to which so much uh, academic writing is so generic, right? I mean, think about it. The reality of ChatGPT is it's just a mashup machine, right? All it can do, all it's designed to do is to look at the corpus of texts that exist and give you the most average possible response to whatever question that you ask. It's not thinking. Right? It's generating conventional wisdom. It's literally a machine for producing conventional wisdom. If you as an academic or you as any other kind of, of art author or artist can't compete with ChatGPT or some other LLM, you know, AI. What are you even worth? <laughs> but yeah, why are you bothering? Right? What you're saying is that what you're producing is utterly conventional. Right? That's kind of pathetic. Right? So, I mean, to my mind, we as academics should be excited about this because it'll screen out a lot of what's not worth producing, not what's not worth looking at, what's not worth paying attention to, and encourage us to focus on the content, what we can add that's better than, than conventional wisdom, what we can add that isn't already out there in, in circulation. You know, if, if ChatGPT can do what you can do already, then you should maybe find something else to do. Yeah, I, th I think you're 100% right. I think if all ChatGPT is doing is regurgitating generic content, then it should it should really make the scientists work easier. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think that's right. You know, I've already used ChatGPT to write a lot of the article, and it worked pretty well. But what was interesting about it was how uncreative it was. What was mostly interesting to me was you know when I tried to say something radical or ask ChatGPT to say something radical, it, it just flatly refused. Right. So a lot of my scholarship, uh, what kind of one branch of my scholarship is sort of uh, what I refer to as kind of an apology for plagiarism. Right. So I'm, I'm a, I, I like to describe myself as the uh, most prominent uh, plagiarism apologist in the legal academy. Uh, I'm also the only one. Right. It's very easy to be first in the field, first in the field of one. You know, so I wanted ChatGPT to produce an article for me that argued plagiarism, that argued that plagiarism norms were illegitimate and that plagiarism is, is a good thing. And it just refused, right? It, it could not produce that text because the corpus of texts out there discussing plagiarism is, you know, 99.999% plagiarism is really bad, right? So a large language model working with this corpus of texts doesn't have anything to work with 
when you ask it to make an argument going the other direction, all it can do is regurgitate the kind of conventional wisdom, unthinking condemnation of, of plagiarism as being bad. It doesn't have a reference to criticize that, that perspective. And, and, I, and I think that that's kind of the fundamental weakness of, of ChatGPT. It's fundamentally incapable of doing anything that we could meaningfully call creative. And that's actually one of the things I think is most interesting about chat GPT from a, from a copyright perspective, right? So we like to say that copyright is about encouraging people to produce creative works, but we never really think about what we mean by creativity or how we go about or how we ought to go about differentiating legitimately creative from uncreative works. We never really had a model or a way of testing that. I actually think chat GPT is perfect. For that because all you have to do is reverse engineer it right by definition chat gpt is incapable of being creative therefore why not use chat gpt to evaluate works produced by people to determine whether the people have actually produced something that's creative or they've just produced something generic that's not deserving of copyright yeah i mean i think open ai is one step ahead of you i just saw that they released a product that basically will scan the works and tell you if there's like a high medium or low low chance that the work was generated from an ai so it's probably just that reverse yeah, engineering yeah. that you're talking yeah, about it's super easy no question they can do it the, the only problem is we need to embrace we need to embrace the reality yeah, yeah. that the machines can tell us yeah, I, I agree. I agree. when we're actually acting yeah i think you actually you minted an nft of that um the output of the AI to your plagiarism request, yes, right? Did. Where it basically like is sort of self-destructed yeah, on itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty brilliant. I, I love how you're like messing around with all those things and just kind of like meshing them together. And I know that there's a new form of plagiarism, which I believe that the academic scholars are calling AI-jurism, uh, which is basically just scholars that are claiming that AI outputs are their own scholarly works. So... <laughs> It's it's fun to see how uh, AI is innovating in the plagiar in the plagiarism uh, venue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping that these AI machines encourage people to complicate what they think they're doing and what they're talking about when they refer to plagiarism. Right? Because one of the things that I've noticed as a, as a scholar of, of the history of plagiarism norms, as it were, is that the level of discourse around plagiarism is depressingly superficial. Uh, I mean, it's so uniformly negative that there's no room for criticism of the assumptions that are made institutionally and socially about the wrongness of engaging in whatever gets classed as being plagiarism to such a degree that there isn't even a coherent definition of what constitutes plagiarism in the first place and is almost entirely a context-specific accusation, right? So uh, an activity that would be obviously plagiarism in one context is considered perfectly normal in another. I mean, the legal profession is a great example, right? I always like to say in the practice of law, if you're not plagiarizing, you're committing malpractice. Right, because you know, especially from a transaction. I was going to say, give me an example, but that's a that's a perfect example. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, everybody's taking the same draft and tweaking it to the benefit of their client. And they should be. Imagine how you would feel as a client if your attorney came to you and said, "Well, we had a really great precedential agreement available, but I didn't want to copy it because that would be plagiarism." So instead, I drafted an entirely new agreement from scratch. Here you go. Here's a bill, by the way, for the 20 hours I spent writing it. Also, we have no idea how any of these provisions are going to be enforced because a judge has never seen any of them before. But, you know, it's not plagiarized, so it's great. <laughs> right. And, and that's that's brilliant. Right. That's and then brilliant. it's so, and it's so yeah, true. And then the same with a brief. Right. I mean, you come to a client and say, well, I didn't want to plagiarize this perfectly serviceable brief. So I rewrote it from scratch. Here's a bill, and who knows if what I've done is as good as this other brief that's been used by 30 or 40 other lawyers successfully on behalf of their clients, right? And then think about what judges do, right? I mean, literally every judicial opinion that gets released is straight up plagiarized from the law clerks. We just don't call it plagiarism. Okay, so that's one industry. Give me another one. I mean, think about ghostwriting, for example. We kind of frown on it, but it happens constantly, right? And it's perfectly accepted. Uh, but it's, yeah, well, it's not plagiarism. Sure it is. 
Ghostwriting is absolutely plagiarism. Well, the assumption is that the the ghostwriter didn't plagiarize the work from yeah, somebody yeah, but else. The, but the but the the person the original authorship of the ghostwriter. Yeah, yeah, but the yeah. person the person who put their name on it did not write what they're claiming to have written. That's plagiarism. So what if I write under a pseudonym? Are you saying that I'm plagiarizing myself? Well, no, because if you write under a pseudonym, then then it's a properly attributed just to you. It's sort of like if you're using a brand. Right. And, you know, this consumers know that it comes from this brand. They just don't know the actual source of whatever is is being produced. But I, I put it another way. Right. I mean, so, you know, if, if on that theory, ghostwriting isn't plagiarism, then an essay mill isn't plagiarism either. Right. Because there it's the essay, essay mill is in the role of the ghostwriter producing the text for the student who then puts their name on it and submits it to well, an essay mill is just chat. No, I mean, I, I, I know from personal experience that essay mills actually produce <laughs> text. Ask me how I know. Well, I commissioned essay mills to write law review articles for me, which, uh, which were then subsequently published. I mean, I did disclose the entire process because it was part of what I was doing. But, um, but the the person I, I I I commissioned it from definitely sat down and and wrote in a original i mean it wasn't that original but it was it was written by somebody i could tell because it wasn't it wasn't particularly good right they also didn't sat, i mean this is like again really i love that they didn't satisfy the prompt right so i asked the essay mill to write me an essay explaining the illegitimacy of plagiarism norms and the essay the person at the essay mill alvin imudu was the first one um he wrote me an essay explaining why plagiarism is bad which i just was like so he didn't fully he didn't fully, he could, I think I maybe mean, he didn't understand. He couldn't fully accept that I would be requesting an essay of that kind. But also the idea of somebody at an essay mill producing an essay about <laughs> who is play, plagiarizing and is explaining why plagiarism. Yeah, I love it. And that's what you do, right? Like you just find these like weird, quirky things that you find <laughs> that you think are funny yes. and then you... Yes. And then you well, and, and it, yeah, right? and the thing, and, and I think the, the key point for me is it's, it's one thing to explain these ideas in kind of conventional academic form. I actually think it's much more effective to show what it looks like, right? So I can sit down and write an article explaining why I don't, and I have written articles explaining why I think plagiarism norms are incoherent. But doing a project like that is sort of an illustration of the incoherence that I think is richer than an explanation in kind of a, a kind of conventional explanation could ever be. Kind of operationalizing it and turning it into a performance makes it more compelling, at least to my mind. Okay, so we've been talking about a lot about text. Let's move on into imagery. Okay, you're a contemporary artist, or what do you usually twist around? You say that you're a contemporary <laughs> lawyer. And a yeah, I like to refer to myself as a conceptual lawyer and securities artist. Conceptual lawyer and securities artist, I love it. So you have a background in creating various forms of art, both movies, right? You produced a bunch of movies. Yeah, so I mean, I went to art school in the mid mid nineties, and I was primarily interested in the kind of new American cinema, American avant garde film, which is sort of a crossover between motion pictures and conceptual art essentially, right? So sort of a very kind of minimalistic uh, filmmaking style where ideas that were au courant in conceptual art in the 60s and 70s were sort of translated into a motion picture medium. So that's kind of the context in, in which I initially primarily worked in, in film. Uh, I did produce a uh, kind of a feature documentary film called Our Nixon, uh, which was directed by Penny Lane and was uh, premiered on, well, premiered at South by Southwest, showed on CNN. It's done pretty well. It's, it's still on like Amazon and all that kind of stuff. So you can watch it for free. More recently, I've kind of reframed my artistic practice to sync up with my scholarly practice more. It's like I said, I've kind of been focused more on sort of using legal scholarship as a medium for artistic activity. And I actually really like it because I kind of feel like the less promising the medium, the more fun it is to try to transmute it into an art, uh, a means for engaging in artistic practice. And there are few media less promising artistically than legal scholarship. So, you know, it's a challenge, but I love it. Okay. So, but we talked about text. Now we're, now we're transitioning over to film and imagery. 
what are your thoughts? And I know your thoughts already, but I want to I want to talk it out. <laughs> I want to talk it out with you on generative mm-hmm. artwork. You know, how do you determine from a copyright perspective specifically what is, I guess, sufficiently unique to coin the SEC's term in in the creative creation of generative art? Like what whose is it? What is it? What protections does it deserve? What happens when you buy a board ape or a punk? What could you do with it? What can't you do with it? Yeah. So I think there's there's actually two questions bound up in there, one of which is kind of a copyright doctrine problem, which I find kind of intellectually interesting as a copyright scholar, but I think ultimately may be the less interesting question in a market sense, because I think actually the, the bigger question is what the market actually wants and what it actually ultimately values, what the kind of fundamentals of the NFT market really are. Okay, so not all of our listeners have a technical or legal background. So I just want to explain for one second what exactly we're talking about. You have copyright and you have trademarks. Trademarks are sort of registered marks that give you the rights to certain images or terms like the Nike logo or the Nike name. While trademarks need to be registered in order for them to be protectable, copyrights don't need to be registered. For example, if I write a blog piece or an article, it's copyrighted inherently by virtue of me having created something that's new and unique. But there are certain things that are not sufficiently unique and are therefore not protected by copyright. For example, the U.S. Compendium on Copyright Law says that in order for something to be protected by copyright, it has to have been created by a human being. So there are still many things that human beings create, but computers contribute to. So it's a question of how much was created by the human versus how much was created by a computer. When we're talking about art that's generated by an AI, especially if it's pixelated or if it's a generative collection where it's creating 10,000 pieces of a scramble of 20 different items, then it's hard to argue that this is sufficiently unique in the sense that it was created by a computer but aided by humans. So when I ask if it's sufficiently unique, this is what I'm referring to. So from a copyright doctrine sense, right? Essentially, the big problem is copyright doctrine doesn't really have tools to deal with what people are doing when they create uh, generative artworks. It, it hasn't really, it, you know, copyright doctrine is relatively relatively old, hasn't evolved all that dramatically in sort of a, a, a statutory sense. And I think courts are kind of slow to adapt broader, more abstract provisions to, to new technology. So I think that the, the, the two big issues that, you know, both I and, uh, and Alfie Steiner have, have identified are, one, this initial question of copyrightability. Right. So I wrote a, a paper titled uh, Are CryptoPunks Copyrightable? And the kind of the, the premise of that paper was that it was ve- it's very difficult, I think, to locate the originality from a copyright perspective with respect to any particular CryptoPunk image. Maybe collectively there are enough kind of choices that are made that the Copyright Office could recognize the corpus of, you know, 10,000 CryptoPunks or whatever as being a, a set of sufficiently creative decisions in the aggregate to constitute a copyrightable work of authorship. But when it comes to any particular image, A, they're, they're you know, they're, eight, they're very small 8-bit images, so they're pretty stripped down to begin with. That's rough from a creativity perspective. Uh, what's more, a lot of the images are pretty generic in the sense that, you know, I identified in the paper, like previous, you know, pixel art that used very, very similar images to the crypto CryptoPunks images, right? Which is unsurprising, right? Because the CryptoPunks images were intended as a kind of homage to 8-bit video games uh, of you know, the 70s and late 70s and, and, and 80s, right? The kind of the very nostalgic sort of feel. What's more, the generative aspect means that individual elements of each CryptoPunk are really, really small, often consisting of only a few pixels. And there's just no way that copyright can protect an element of a work that consists of only a few pixels. So, I mean, I I think there's a a, a kind of open question about whether the CryptoPunks images are even copyrightable subject matter in the first place. I could see, you know, a court or the Copyright Office going either way on that, but, but it's unusual in the sense that it's, it's, it's typically really easy 
to know whether or not a work is copyrightable or not. In the case of the CryptoPunks, I think it's hard. Alfie pointed out a sort of different problem, which is that when you're talking about the copyrightable, a copyrightability of a particular image, you've got to differentiate it from all the other similar images. And when it comes to the Bored Apes, for example, right, in the abstract, they seem pretty clearly copyrightable, right, because the level of detail and content, even in the individual elements, is considerably higher. Copyright doesn't expect that much. So, you know, I would say in the abstract, even the elements would be copyrightable. The problem is that you've got all of these different variations on the same elements. Well, how do you differentiate one Bored Ape image from another Bored Ape image? <laughs> Especially when they might have exactly. the same backgrounds, right. same right. imagery, and as like, as like exactly, and as Ryder Rips has pointed out, there's like a lot of the board eight images where the only difference between one image and another is a different colored background. Well, those are the same image, right? You can't have multiple copyright owners, right? Or you can't you you can't claim, especially given that most of the people who are using the the IP for commercial use are removing the background as it is. So then you really exactly. have no distinction. They're they're literally the same image. But but I think that this that that kind of gets us to what I, what I think is more interesting, right? Because for better or for worse, lawyers and law right, so that was my question on, on this sufficiently yeah. unique. So so I mean, like I think that the copyright office would very likely look to the board ape images in the aggregate and say that these elements are copyrightable and therefore board ape as the creator or rather Yuga as the creator of these board ape images as a work made for hire presumably uh, could be the copyright owner of them in the aggregate, right? I think there's an open question about what if anything they're actually conveying by way of a copyright interest to the NFT owners who they're purporting to give a license. Maybe they're just giving the same non-exclusive license to a bunch of different NFT owners who own very similar or identical uh, NFTs of very similar identical uh, board ape images. Right. The The issue comes when you tell your community, okay, you bought these NFTs. Now we want you to take them, build on the IP, commercialize it, you know, start your own multi-million dollar companies that are centered around this IP yeah. Yeah. when... I don't even know if yeah, I can yeah. give you those well, protections. Like, is the IP even mine to give to you? And if it is, is it is it sufficiently um, different than what I've licensed already to somebody else? So that if you go out and you you know have a chain of restaurants using your ape, and somebody else has a makeup line using their ape, uh, who's right. to say what the that's, distinction is? That, that's right, and, and I and I think that actually gets to what I think the more interesting question from a practical standpoint is because. I actually think the use of the term IP or the use of the term commercial rights is really unfortunate because it's quite misleading and confusing. Uh, from a doctrinal perspective, from a, from a legal perspective, really, I think it's critical to distinguish between copyright and trademark interests because they're totally separate and they go to different value propositions. And at the end of the day, I think especially when it comes to the large generative PFP type Collections, the value is not in the copyright, the value is in the trademark. That the value is in the brand, not in any particular, not in kind of control over any particular image. In particular, when it comes to something like CryptoPunks. Yes, but when you're, but the brand creates goodwill that's associated with yeah. each of the copyrights. Because if I want to build um, a company around my ape, then yes, I cannot draw on the trademarks that belong to Yuga, such as Yuga Labs, yeah. BAYC, or anything else that's associated yeah. with the collection. But uh, there's no question that the goodwill of my ape and my ability to use it will be drawn from the success of Yuga in you know raising uh, $400 million and a $4 billion valuation and developing and launching the other side and all these other kind of things that they're doing on top that are dripping down and that goodwill is enabling me to build around my singular nft image which is resounding so, in copyright but drawing on the goodwill so this, the so this is I, I i i agree to an extent but i actually think that this is where the problem really comes in because my intuition based on personal experience right is that when consumers see a generative image like a crypto punk or a board image used in a commercial context right they see it as emblematic of the larger brand 
CryptoPunks or Board Ape, not of a particular source, right? I think it's difficult for most consumers to meaningfully differentiate between different images from a very large collection like that. And so each one of those images, functionally speaking, is a representation of the larger brand, even if you're not directly using the word mark or even, you know, specific. You're referring to to layman consumers. In yes. other words, not somebody from within the Web3 community who would easily identify, you know, Punk 6529 with his sure. own work as a Sure, but, but to... you know, but even when it comes to that, right, I would say like, look, I I would vaguely know like, oh, that looks pretty close to Punk 6529, but there's a halo around it of very similar punk images, which I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't differentiate those from that particular image, right? So I mean, like, and, and to the extent that punk 6529 is associated with that particular crypto punk image, that's him, Bill, I'm presuming him, building goodwill around that particular image and engaging in the branding exercise himself, not just drawing on the goodwill of crypto punks. In other words, I think that there's independent goodwill developed in relation to the brand imaging that, uh, that didn't happen. That, but but it works it works both ways. Right. I mean, the power oh, of the yeah. community uh, can be drawn back up to the founders and and vice versa. In the same way that the founders, you know, if they do something shady, then it will have an impact on the community members on their own respective. hundred percent. But, but I think that there's, so we're all one big happy family. <laughs> but I think that there's a lot of kind of unresolved questions about how that really works in practice, right? So like the example I like to, to go to, because it's such an obvious one, right? Is, you know, imagine you choose to use your Board Ape Yacht Club image to promote your burger restaurant. Right. Now you're permitted to do that by their license, although what you effectively have is a non-exclusive license to use that image that or the images of related to the NFTs you purchased in a in a commercial context. Imagine somebody in another part of the country. Right? Imagine you're imagine you're operating your burger uh, restaurant in Long Beach, California, and somebody else decides to open a uh, Board Ape Yacht Club themed burger restaurant in in New York City, right? Nothing about the, the licensing terms is preventing them from doing that, right? But I think that it's- um, well, that, But they would, it would have to be with their own ape. It sure, be with mine. right? But my point is- So the, in that sense, it's not, not exclusive. Well, it's yeah, exclusive except, except for the fact that I strongly suspect that the overwhelming majority of consumers will not see the restaurant as being, this is a restaurant branded with Ape twenty three thirty seven, right? They will see it as that's the board ape restaurant, right? Yeah, and, and now we've got a problem because imagine that this new board ape burger restaurant in New York City decides they want to open a, a franchise in Brentwood. Okay, so that's an easy exercise. Imagine that the burger joint in California was phenomenal, but the one in Florida gave everybody salmonella. Right? So like, how do you deal with brand control in that situation, especially when nobody knows how to distinguish between one ape and another? That's right. That's right. So there's all of these questions about how you allocate these brands. And, and, the, and I think these are pretty, like, pretty basic questions. Like, you know, at the end of the day, it's Yuga Labs that is the brand owner and Yuga Labs that's sub-licensing sub the brand to their NFT owners. And only Yuga Labs is in a position to mediate the relationship between these sub-licensees, they're non-exclusive licensees. They can't do it themselves when it comes to the brand, right? So how do you go about apportioning market share and whatnot when it comes to, to the branding, right? What's more is, you know, and this usually isn't such a big deal, but I do worry a little bit about problems like naked licensing when it comes to like, they're not exercising, as far as I can tell, a huge amount of like quality control over who's using the brand and for what. So, so this is this is a great point, And this is something that I've been struggling with lately. I'm advising a project right now, one of the early NFT projects that have, you know, very goodwill around their IP. It's a great collection. And there have, there have been a lot of requests from the community to start commercializing and using their IP, but not a lot of guidelines from the from the founding team as to what and how they should or could do that. 
So um, I've been working with the team and we're just kind of trying to think together what's the best way to empower our community to use this IP in a way that will be beneficial for the community as a whole, for the founders, and without getting out of control. So we've given a lot of thought to kind of drafting brand guidelines, if you will, as to best practices for using the IP. But there, there isn't a, a really great way to enforce this or control it. And I could easily see it getting out of hand. So, it, you know, I don't have answers. I just have a lot of questions. But this is something that, that we're struggling with. And I'm sure that there are other projects that are well. I, I think it's a healthy problem in the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I mean, I, I think it's a it's a, a doctrinal problem in a lot of ways or a practical problem as well. But I also think, like, as you were alluding to earlier, the nice thing about it is there's a huge amount of potential synergy between the brand and the people using the brand. They build off each other, I think, in really productive ways. And in some ways, I think it's, it's a failing of our body of copyright doctrine that it doesn't contemplate brands being used in that collaborative, like really radically collaborative kind of way, which could be really beneficial, right? And good, good for consumers, good for businesses, uh, and so on. Uh, so, you know, it, it seems to me that there would, that there's value in thinking about how we can accommodate these kinds of new social uses and creation of new social value in this way. If the law can't do it yet, it ought to, the law ought to kind of evolve to to facilitate that and to think about what the law can do in order to make that work more efficiently. Okay, we'll leave it to the <laughs> to the legislature. <laughs> okay, so I want to quickly segue to another topic. I know that you taught or teach charity law, which I don't know all that much about on the legal side, but I have been working with a lot of nonprofits lately who have been interested in coming into the Web3 space, particularly, you know, it started with them just wanting to receive donations in crypto. But I have an organization here in Israel that works with children with disabilities. They do some really, really amazing things. They basically said to me after a few months, you know, okay, now we could accept crypto donations, but we don't really understand or know anything about these communities and these technologies. We want to learn, learn more. So we put together a phenomenal event in Miami just uh, under a month ago. And I don't know if you've ever been to any like crypto NFT conferences, but they're all pretty much the same. There's a lot of like regurgitated content, always the same people, same conversations. But we decided to put on an event that was a little bit different. And basically the title was From Gaming to Giving, How Crypto and NFTs Could Be Leveraged for Charitable Purposes and for Impact. One of the ideas that came up was incentivizing artists to work into their um, revenue share a percentage that they would you know pledge to give to a charity so if five percent of revenue share is going to creators so two percent of that would go to x charity perpetually i wonder on your thoughts on that and also having a background in charity law you have any um, other suggestions or ideas as to how we could utilize these technologies for to better the world. Yeah, so yeah. So I mean, like I, I, yeah, I taught nonprofit organizations, which I, I like to refer to as, as charity law. Uh, there's a couple areas where I've been been really interested, and, and actually, I would say that a lot of my scholarly interest in NFTs actually grew out of my interest in in charity law, specifically you know, about ten years ago when crowdfunding was first introduced, I, I wrote it pretty extensively about kind of the economic kind of realities of crowdfunding and what it told us about the charitable sector. And in a lot of ways, I think the NFT market is actually very deeply related to the crowdfunding market. The difference is that it added speculation, which made it kind of revved up considerably, right? The, 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 the big problem with crowdfunding was it was hard to incentivize investment because there was no return on investment or no potential for a return on investment except insofar as you get you get kind of warm fuzzies which is why i thought that equity crowdfunding was a great step up in that direction because yeah the incentive incentives through kickstarter were were not great i can't tell you how many projects i bought into that went nowhere but um but And, and i think you know and this is what what kind of I observe is that in many respects, I think the NFT market as it currently exists is functionally a form of equity crowdfunding, right? Insofar as when you buy NFTs, what you're really buying into is the future of a brand. 
and the belief that the brand is going to be more valuable in the future than it is today. So from a practical standpoint, I think that the NFT market accomplishes something in a really simple fashion that's complicated to do in the kind of traditional way. And I think that's one of the, the part of the power of the NFT market from a, from a capital generation standpoint. Um, a couple other things I think are kind of potentially interesting in the charity law space. One obviously is the rise of interest in, in DAOs, right? And I think there's a lot of potential crossover between DAOs and the charity law space, especially insofar as, you know, a lot of DAOs are significantly, if not entirely directed toward what are broadly speaking charitable enterprises. I think that in a lot of ways, what DAOs reflect is an interest in more direct governance relationships between the people participating, like the, the audience for a charity and the charity's actual activities. And I do kind of wonder whether, and I don't know really much of anything about Israeli charity law, but in the United States, historically, there was a distinction between membership governed charities and board governed charities. And there was a very long trajectory of phasing out membership charities in favor of uh, board govern charities uh, because of, you know, the ease of, of you know, a self-replicating board, uh, you know, facilitating governance decisions, so on and so forth. Um, I, I think that, you know, the internet, broadly speaking, and Web3 and the innovations that kind of led to the creation of DAOs might revitalize the viability of membership-based charitable organizations in an interesting way to the extent that people who want to be engaged in charitable activities also want to have more involvement in the governance and decision making of the charity around what it's going to do and and why. So that could be a kind of potentially anyway, interesting long-term structural change. We'll see if it goes anywhere. I haven't noticed a whole lot yet, but I think you know the charitable sector moves pretty slowly generally, especially when it comes to legal legal innovation. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, nice. I, I have suspicions that, you know, if it turns out that there's demand from people engaged in charitable activity for that kind of involvement, then DAOs could be an effective way of, of doing it. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of interesting crossover though. And, you know, I think the charity law perspective has, has always been, been helpful for me as well as kind of keeping my toe in the water a little bit as to, you know, advising clients and, you know, engaging in kind of on the ground practical legal activity, which I think is helpful for healthy for legal academics. Yeah, I, I think the problem with DAOs as an alternative governance mechanism is that today, if you want to have, a, you know, quote unquote, real DAO, because the, the term DAO gets thrown around just way too lightly. I can't tell you how many times I've bought an NFT and joined the Discord and they're like, oh, welcome to the DAO. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> uh, this is, and nobody, nobody signed me up for that, for, you know, joint uh, unlimited liability with uh, the rest of you guys. Um, so I, I think most DAOs, as they are today are not DAOs, but for you know a charity or a company that's looking to structure a DAO in the form of a foundation and to do it really like properly and, and to be regulated, it's expensive. And so the cost of being compliant and you know structuring these things in a manner that's gonna allow you to build something viable and sustainable down the road is just too costly to be a real alternative for nonprofits at this stage. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and I couldn't agree more that, you know, the, the, the big limitation on what I'm proposing and or kind of seeing as a possibility for at least some organizations down the line does necessarily by its very nature require a kind of acceptance of the inability to engage in profit taking from from the enterprise, right? I mean, if you if you want to form a charitable organization, it means you're not going to be able to take equity back out of the organization later, right? The the anything anything deposited, anything given to the organization will have to remain its its property. But you know, I think that might still be a viable option for at least some 
uh, activities, if not necessarily all of them, and maybe being able to distinguish between which kinds of DAOs are actually structured as charities and which kinds of DAOs aren't could provide a kind of helpful framework for thinking about what kind of DAO law, as it were, might look like in the future. What else? Eh? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm surely, I'm, I'm totally open-minded. We can talk about, we can talk about anything of interest. Um, you know, I've got some new pieces you mentioned that uh, about uh, resale royalties. Okay, let me just briefly explain to anybody who's listening who's not like an NFT degen and doesn't exactly know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So one of the great things about the blockchain and something that I've been advocating very strongly for as to why NFTs in particular are a great thing for creators generally and artists in particular is that one of the things that you could write into a smart contract, which is basically a contract that says if A does B and C does D, then Y will happen, is the notion of creator royalties. So if I'm an artist and I'm creating an NFT, so I'm deploying, right? I'm putting the NFT on the blockchain and I could write into the smart contract that from now and forevermore, anytime somebody buys this NFT, 60% of the proceeds will go to me, 10% will go to my wife, 10% will go to my dad, 10% will go to my mom, and 10% will go to my best friend. And that is something that will be dictated in the blockchain and theoretically should continue to exist forever and forever and forever and forever. However, recently, some of the places for the sale of NFTs have found ways to override this and have basically said, you know what, we think that these creators are being a bit overbearing with their 5 to 10% of royalties and secondary sales. We're going to change all that and we're going to make it optional. So now if you buy an NFT, you could decide if you want to give those royalties to the creator or if you want to keep them or the majority of them to yourself. Now, who in their right mind is going to give money voluntarily to a third party, even if they think the art is great and the artist is great? Not many people part easily with their money. And so what we've seen is many, many creators who were you know, had a steady flow of income from the resale of their art have basically gone back to not getting anything from the resale of their art or just a very small amount, maybe half a percent. And it's very much changed the way people have viewed um, the NFT market and blockchain technology as a means for creating and deploying and distributing art. And Brian wrote a fantastic article about this for a publication called right-click, save as, basically discussing the pros and cons and also the history of creator royalties in the art market. Back to you, Brian. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think the, the resale royalty observation for me grows out of a kind of a, a grow, grows out of the bigger picture kind of take I have on the economic realities of, of the NFT market. So, you know, for quite a few years, I've been interested in the economics of the conventional art market, uh, and specifically in relation between artists and and collectors. And that's why I got interested in, in resale royalties, because it's been long been a point of contention between artists and collectors, kind of jockeying for financial interests in future sales of of works of art. Uh, and at least in the United States, collectors have basically always prevailed. I, I would argue that even internationally, that's that's true as well, right? A lot of European countries have created statutory resale royalties. The practical effect has been is that collectors just don't sell their work there anymore. They sell it in the United States where they don't have to pay the resale royalties. Um, and, and, you know, that it's easy enough to avoid. So what's the issue? Uh, a, a lot of artists tried to create private resale royalties. Effectively, contract law didn't really allow that to happen for you know, lack of privity of contract between the artist and, and collectors on the secondary market. You, know, you, can't, you can't enforce a, a contract about, against someone who didn't form it with you. Right, you, 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 that that contract law just yeah, but, but I don't, I don't know because I, I feel like smart contracts are different because they're they're uh, proposed right. perpetuality. Right. So I'm, right. I'm determining right. the right. terms of the contract from now until forever, and right. and right. anybody who that's chooses right. to but engage way- with that smart contract, even in a hundred years, 
will have to agree to the terms of the smart contract. So um, I was actually right. ignorant, right. Would... thinking that all NFTs that were deployed on OpenSea were deployed with the royalties built into the smart contract. Only after I read your article, I understood that that's not the case. But to the extent that yeah. it is, there's no question that the platforms wouldn't be able to touch the resale royalties, correct? And then you wouldn't argue that's, for I, I... privity of contract because... Why? Right. Why wouldn't you That's argue right. for privity of contract? It doesn't matter, right? Because I think that the power of, of why why doesn't it matter? Contract. If it, it, your argument well, that, I don't is, think that anybody who's buying in the secondary market didn't agree to these terms stays the same, because, except now now they can't touch the contract because yeah. I deployed it. But but the thing is, yeah. But the thing is, a smart contract isn't a contract at all because it doesn't require enforcement by the law. It operates automatically. Right. Well, so there's no that's need the argument that law is code. Sure. Right. Although I would say I'm mean, or code is law. Rather. I like I like. Yeah. Right. I mean, I like I like the that as a, a catchphrase, although I think it's actually kind of misleading. I don't think it's true that code is law. Code is code and law is law. And sometimes code is a more efficient way to accomplish whatever practical goal you want to achieve than relying on the law. Is going to be if the law doesn't accommodate what you want it to do then maybe you can rely on alternative mechanisms to accomplish the same goal we have done that socially for a very long time right we enforce a lot of relationships or agreements socially even though we can't do so legally right there are all kinds of illegal contracts for example that nonetheless get enforced because you know people have uh you know informal mechanisms as it were of enforcement, I think you know, code is another way of accomplishing a similar kind, kind of goal. I, I think the interesting question for me is, you know, what kind of choices do people participating in the market make against the backdrop of code imposing obligations that the law doesn't impose? And I think that'll be an interesting question in the NFT marketplace. Insofar as you know, collectors have a choice between purchasing NFTs that have royalty payments, effectively taxes, really, built into the smart contract as opposed to ones that don't, right? And how those incentives on the back end uh, affect what artists do when they create the NFTs in, in the first place. Uh, in, in the sense that, you know, if you know that creating an NFT with, uh, with royalties built in to the contract, into the NFT itself is going to disincentivize collectors from buying the NFT, right? That gives you a reason not to do that. And there are alternative ways of generating revenue, right? Like you can always just sell more NFTs or you could charge a higher price upfront for NFTs that don't have uh, a contract. Yeah, but, but that's in. not sustainable as an artist as well. And if your assumption is that, I don't know, I thought that perpetual royalties was like one of the great things that NFTs brought to the market. I mean, this is empowering creators. I, I use it as a as a great use case all the time for why ticketing is a great industry to introduce NFTs because um, yeah, sports clubs and theater clubs are losing a ton of money on scalper prices. But again, if somebody's going to come in and cut out the creator's royalties on the secondary market, then it's going to completely destroy that argument. And we're going to have to rethink the entire right. industry. So to my mind, the idea of resale royalties is a kind of relic of looking at the art market as a market for objects rather than a market for brands. I think the art market has always been a market for brands. When, when artists are selling artwork, what they're always really selling is effectively an investment in in their career, right? But I think it's been hard for people to see that because the objects got in the way, right? And the objects made people. Well, I, think. I, I've heard you say that on, on a number of different uh, at a number of different occasions. I, I don't agree with you <laughs> because I, I think that there's two schools of thought here, okay? Or not two schools of thought, but rather two ways of relating to the issue. Um, I know that there's two types of art that I would buy. I would either buy art because it resonates with me and because I want to display it on my wall and because it makes me feel good. And I'd either be willing to pay a premium because I love it so much or, you know, looking to buy it at cost because I'm cheap and I want to get something that looks nice on my wall but isn't too costly. And then there's art that is from the other school that you're talking about where I want to buy into a brand, okay? And... 
I would argue that there, I would still only buy something that I resonate with, either resonate with the art itself or resonate with the message that the artist is trying to convey. Um, but I would say that there are probably people who bought Bored Apes that they don't like, but because they were close to the floor and they wanted to, you know, quote unquote, ape into this project because they wanted to be associated with something that they think is going to go to the moon. Um, but I think that that's a small camp. I don't think that the majority of people who are buying art are doing it because they're buying into the artist brand or because they think that the artist is going to be great someday. I think that they're buying art because they resonate with how it looks and how it makes them feel. For sure. No, and I 100% agree that a very significant part of the art market, as it were, is people buying art as a consumption good. And that that's totally fine. I don't have any you know, I don't, I obviously don't object to that. I, I think it's great. People should like art and people should want to consume art. And if they want to buy art as a consumption good to hang on the wall and appreciate themselves with no thought to the potential or even expectation that the art will have, that their art they're purchasing will have a value on the secondary market. I think that's good. It's also realistic because 99.9% .9 of art that's sold to consumers has no value on the secondary market because nobody wants to buy it at the price at which it was sold or or any other price for that matter right when i talk about the art market the conventional art market i'm really only talking about the market for art as investment and i think that can be and usually is bound up with aesthetic appreciation of the work in question but, you know, no one pays a hundred thousand dollars a million dollars for a work of art or an nft for that matter if they without the belief that, it, that there's at least the possibility, a reasonable possibility, that the work that they're buying is going to have at least some value, if not a higher value, on the secondary market yes. in the future. So in that market, that, there's always an investment. I agree with you. There's always an investment element, right? And that's the market that I'm ultimately really talking about and interesting in, interested in, because I think that that's the market that offers the, the possibility for speculation and capital formation. Right? The other market is great, but I think it's a, it's, we've had that market for a long time, and I think its potential is, is limited, right? Because people's interest in buying things as consumption goods is, you know, they have a limited appetite for that, and it's hard to By the sell. way, I think N NFTs have, have helped the market mature in that sense because anybody who belongs to the old camp is going to right-click save as. Right. But anybody who really wants to buy into art for, you know, this message that you're trying to convey is going to want to buy it on the blockchain. That's right. And That's right. I could tell you that for myself, you know, I've collected, uh, you know, I've amassed quite a bit of NFTs in my collection. Still, anytime that I've right clicked save as and printed something out and hung it on my office, uh, on the wall in my office, because um, whatever, because it's, it's, it's a piece of work that I can't afford to buy. Um, there's like a twinge of pain in my heart that I'm like, ah, you know, look, I, I like it, but like, it's not as opposed to like, you know, the, the cheap crappy NFTs that I've, that I have in my hidden folder, which I'd feel proud of if I put, <laughs> if I put them up on my wall, because, you know, this is something that I have real ownership over. Um, so I, yeah, I do think that, that, that the NFT market has helped the market mature, towards the market that you're that you're referring to yeah yeah so, so and, and i think that that's really an interesting and exciting development because i think interestingly the kind of art market economics are uniquely um appropriate to a technology that that makes information abundant rather than scarce right so when we make ownership of works of authorship, not about control over the consumption of the work of authorship, but about uh, a share in the commercial goodwill and the clout associated with the brand that created the work of authorship. All of a sudden, you make it e not just easier, but actually synergistically, mutually beneficial to encourage as much consumption as possible, as opposed to artificially restricting consumption, which is really what copyright is all about, right? I mean, copyright is about like creating, creating deadweight losses, right? I mean, the entire purpose of copyright is to say, you're going to charge above market clearing prices, above marginal costs for whatever it is that you're distributing. I think that's a shame if we don't have to do it anymore. And if we can transition into a creative marketplace, 
of, of every kind, right? Where people can consume willy-nilly, whatever they want, whenever they want, however, however much they want. And that is beneficial, not just for the consumers, but for the creators as well. I think that that's, that's a, that's a huge, huge, that's a huge, you know, benefit to everybody that that's solving market failures right there in, in ways that I think would be really, really positive. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, do you mind just telling your audience um, how they can get in touch with you? How they? I mean, I know you have like a million links. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Brian L Fry. B R I A N L F R Y E. You can also find me on YouTube at Brian L Fry. Uh, Ipsedix Podcast is I P S E D I X I T. It's available at all the relevant uh, podcast outlets. And uh, you can email me at uh, Brian L. Fry, B-R-I-A-N-L-F-R-Y-E at gmail.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion and I look forward to having many more together. Awesome. Anytime. I'm always delighted. It's great to talk to you. See you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Code. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe, share with your friends, and to tune in again next week for more fun and insightful conversations.